Hello, everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss everything that does not fit into a sermon. We are following up on Sunday's message, Walking in the Will of God, for Numbers chapters 1 through 9. And I'm going to share a couple of extra thoughts about following the will of God. Then my friend Denny Milburn will be sharing uh, his idea about seeking the will of God. And then we have an interview with my friend Josiah Solis, which some of you may remember from the first year of the Youth Call program, that missions-based discipleship uh, program. And so it'll be exciting to hear him and how he had to walk in the will of God and make some hard decisions and how he figured out what God wanted to do with his life. Um, but first, let's recap as briefly as possible Sunday's message. We opened with Romans chapter 12, which tells us that we needed to be renewed in our minds so that we can discern the will of God, which is good, pleasing, acceptable, and perfect. We then looked at the first chapters of, cha- of Numbers 1 through 9 and noticed that throughout, God is asking Israel to keep him in the center, that they would camp around him, that they would carry his presence wherever they went, and that they would follow him through a cloud that he would guide them with. When the cloud was sitting still, they were to put camp there underneath the cloud and camp around the tabernacle. When the cloud moved, they were to move with it. They were not to move till the cloud moved, and when the cloud stayed, they were to stay. And so we then close the message by talking about, okay, so the common will of God is that we walk in his presence and carry his presence wherever we go. But sometimes there will be secondary choices to make about his will. Do I move? Do I go here? What do I do in this situation? So we discuss some practical ways in order to discern and think about what the will of God is. That was Sunday's message. Unfortunately, in a minute and four seconds. But close enough. Now we're ready to move on. I have a couple of thoughts for us in Jeremiah 29, Ephesians 1, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There is this amazing passage in the first chapter of the amazing book of Ephesians. And Paul writes in it, Ephesians 1 verse 7, In him, this is in Christ, and this is in the middle of the chapter in which he's telling us all of the wonderful blessings and the inheritance we have in and through Christ. And this is one of them. He says, in him, in Christ, We have redemption, that's salvation, that's deliverance, that's freedom, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. My goodness, friends, that is a loaded message of words there. But what Paul is saying is that, yes, we have redemption, this deliverance through Jesus's blood, which is the forgiveness of our sins. So we're being released from sin. But in addition to this, he is giving us, he is revealing to us the mystery of God's will. And he goes on to say that this will was his plan that at the end of time, all things will be united in Christ. And he specifies all means all, including 
things in heaven and things on earth. God's big will is that there will be unity in everything he created. We experience division now. Heaven and earth are often at odds, and we get glimpses of heaven in our life as Christians, but often we're living separate from heaven. We live on earth, and uh, we have divisions, we have divorce, we have fights, we have wars, we have strife, we have pain, we have disease. The list goes on and on. There's a Hebrew word, shalom, which loosely means peace, but, but more fully refers to what happens when everything is coming together in harmony, everything fits, everything works. We have peace because everything is of one peace. Everything coming together as one. And Ephesians says that one is Christ. In him, it is all coming together. In him, there is peace. In him, everything fits. Everything makes sense. Everything is in harmony. Everything is in shalom. Yet we live in a world of difficult circumstances. And sometimes we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. We're praying for God's will. We want to be in a different place. We're praying that God will take us out of this situation because it's just not positive. If anyone could complain about that, it was the exiles in Babylon. 500 years before Jesus, Babylon sacks Jerusalem and destroys their temple and takes the Jews in Jerusalem and relocates them to a pagan city in Babylon where their gods they know not of and their foods they should not eat. Yeah, and a different language that they don't speak. They were in a bad place. And if I was them, I would have been praying over and over, God, take me out of this place. And my focus would be on God is going to take me out of this place and I will start to live my life when he gets me out of here. But that is not how God counsels them. Rather, he tells them, carry on. They're in Babylon as if it is exactly where God wants you to be. So Jeremiah, the prophet, writes this letter to these exiles in Babylon, and he says this. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply, therefore, and do not decrease. I want you to carry on with normal life, he's saying, because I don't want you to decrease. I don't want you to get smaller just because your circumstances aren't favorable. I want you to thrive. This is my will and my plan for you, even when you are not where you want to be. Then in verse 7, he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now that word welfare in the Hebrew is shalom. Peace, things coming together to be a whole harmony. Things the way they should be. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you. For in its shalom, you will find your shalom. Sometimes we find God's will for our lives 
by seeking the best for everyone and everything around us. And then an amazing thing happens. A verse we all know comes up. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for shalom and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Even in situations we're praying to get out of. Even in dark times where we think this cannot be God's will. God says to us, no, no, no. There's a future and a hope. And I am bringing shalom to your life. In Christ, I am reuniting all things in heaven and on earth. Therefore, I want you to carry on. And I want you to seek the shalom of everyone and everything around you. For in its shalom will be your shalom. Do you see what God's will is for us? Even in hard circumstances, he is asking us to partner with him to bring all things together in Christ. This means that our daily lives are seeking to promote unity and not division. That means we're not complaining. We're not slandering and gossiping. We're not grumbling all of the time. But rather, we're doing what 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And friends, if we made a habit of that daily, I suppose we would be bearers of shalom and seeing shalom bear fruit in our own lives. This is God's wonderful will for us. What should we look for when looking for the will of God? Denny Milburn addresses this question next. Well, hello, Kristen. I know you're a Christian. I see you around here all the time praying. I've heard a lot of things you pray. You're even on your knees and everything. Well, I wanted to tell you, God's not going to answer your prayer. What do you mean he's not going to answer my prayer? God's not going to answer your prayer. Why are you telling me that? Aren't you a professor and a teacher? Why are you saying God's not going to answer my prayer? Does he answer every prayer? Yes, no, maybe later. Uh, no, he doesn't. He's not going to answer your prayer. Why do you say that? I said, well, because it's true. I'm not the, I don't speak with forked tongue. I'm not the devil with a forked tail. I'm telling you the truth. God's not going to give you the dot. You don't know what that means, but I'm going to explain it to you in a minute. I hear all of your prayers, and you're praying for the dot in a lot of your prayers. Picture a handkerchief on the ground with one dot in the middle. That's praying for the dot. Maybe next to you have a big polka dot cloth with a whole bunch of dots. They all represent prayers, and they're all prayers that God's not going to answer for you. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Leave you in a little suspense. I want to tell you a story first. 
long ago and far away, there lived a guy named Adam. He lived in a garden. There was a girl there named Eve. And they had a landlord. We'll call him God. Land Lord God. And Landlord God told Adam, go and name every animal that you see running around here. Now, you don't have to come running to me every time and ask me about every single animal. You have freedom. Just name them anything you want to. You don't have to come carrying me a turtle and say, can I call this a turtle? Or carry me a lamb and say, can I call this a lamb? Or carry me a hippopotamus and say, can I call this a hippopotamus? You know, We'll put that hippopotamus down. Don't you know you just had an operation on your ribs? You're going to hurt yourself. So God told him to name all the animals. And then he said, I have something else I need to tell you. And it's important, so listen. He said, you see all these trees around the garden here, everywhere? And that tree over there, the tree of good and evil? He says, you can eat of any of these trees but Adam are you listening quit looking at that girl now listen to me this is important you can eat of all the trees in the garden but of that tree of good and evil you can't eat that's the only rule that's the only parameter okay you got that Adam says yes I want to talk to you about some things that you ought to question when you hear about the will of God and by will. Things you ought to question. Bottom of the traditional view that I think you ought to question. Well, first of all, I don't know if anyone takes this one seriously, but there are some stupid things that people do. And you'll probably find out that you do the same thing. Guys that want to know the will of God, they open their Bible, they stick their finger down and say, that's for me guy did that, opened his Bible, stuck his finger down, and said Judas went and hanged himself. He didn't like that, so he opened it again, stuck his finger down, and it said, go and do likewise. So that's probably not a good way to determine the will of God. That just doesn't work too good. A lot of people like to talk about Gideon's fleece. A lot in the traditional view, people talk about Gideon's fleece. Gideon's fleece is not a good way to determine the will of God. And in fact, Gideon wasn't even using it to determine the will of God. He already knew what God wanted him to do. He already had received several supernatural uh, demonstrations of things. He had an angel that talked to him. Uh, God spoke to him. Uh, the Spirit came upon him and gave him uh, divine enablement. And he had no doubt what God wanted him to do. When he put that fleece out on the ground, he wasn't trying to determine God's will, he was trying to confirm it. He did not put the fleece on the ground because he already had God's will. It was an expression of doubt and disbelief. It's a way of walking by sight instead of by faith. He's trying to build his own confidence up, but God already told him what to do. He knew what to do. He was doing that for confirmation, not for God's will. And so uh, Gideon's fleece is not a good way at all. In fact, he even admitted the same that he knew it. He said, 
then I shall know that thou will deliver Israel through me. So he already knew the plan, but this was to, uh, to confirm it. Now, another way that people do it, besides Gideon's fleece, is uh, some inner voice. They talk about inner impressions, and yet uh, you can't be sure where they come from. They'll call it by different names. They might say the still small voice or an inward urging or uh, a guiding impulse or an inner voice, inward pressure, inward impression. Uh, and uh, these inward impressions can come from different sources. They don't know where this impression came from. If you get some inner impression, it might have come from Satan. It might have come from an angel or a demon or from some human emotion like fear. Maybe it's a hormone imbalance, uh, insomnia, medication, or upset stomach. Uh, maybe you're wondering if you should read your Bible and pray before you go to bed, but you ate a pizza and your stomach's all upset. And you think... That's a sign. I shouldn't pray and read my Bible tonight because my stomach's upset. That's a sign. Anyway, none of these things rise to the level of anything miraculous and where God is necessarily uh, speaking with them or telling them something. And even if it did, it'd be extra-biblical revelation, which is dangerous. We'll talk about that. Here's another big one that they'll use which you really might want to argue with me about, and that's open doors. People are always talk about open doors. You wait for God to open a door for me, and then I'll know his will. I go through that door, I do his will. And the truth is, there are open doors in several places in the scriptures. Uh, open doors uh, to Paul and other places. And so you think, well, Paul's supposed to go through that door, that open door, and do God's will, like he has no choice. But that's not true. The Bible often speaks of open doors, but there's a choice there. You don't have to do it. You don't have to go through it. And if you did have to do it, then Paul was rebellious, because there's times when he didn't go through an open door. Um, an open door does not represent God's will that must be taken. An open door represents opportunity, which may or may not be taken. It's an open door of opportunity. You can go and minister there or not, but it's an opportunity. It's not necessarily God's will. And this is evident in Paul's uh, ministry. Uh, like when he was in Troas, he had an open door there. But things came up in the church at Corinth. He wrote them a letter. He wasn't sure how they were going to react. Things were going pretty bad. He thought, he was going to have to go over there and handle a more pressing situation right now than going through this open door. So he turned and didn't go through this open door. He went to take care of the thing at Corinth, which would have been rebellious and sinful if he absolutely had to go through that open door, but he didn't. Now, he could always go back to Troas later. Uh, Christians, a lot of times, like to talk about closed doors. The Bible doesn't talk about closed doors anywhere. And Paul didn't know about closed doors. He had an open door in Troas. He went and took care of it in Corinth. He could always go back, and the door wasn't closed. The opportunity was still there, and he could do it. So just the fact that there's an open door doesn't necessarily mean that's the will of God at all. Uh, some people think circumstances will determine the will of God. I remember when I was young, I was going to go to Bible college. It was going to take four years. And I remember reading prophecy and all that, 
And I thought, I don't have time to go through Bible college before Jesus comes. I just know the rapture is going to come in a year or two years, and I'm just wasting my time going to college. But uh, if I'd have listened to those circumstances, I wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't have been a pastor. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be doing this podcast. So uh, circumstances don't dictate the will of God necessarily. People always talk about peace. That's another one. Well, I'll have peace. Well, what I would say is, if you do the right thing and do the things that God wants, you're going to have peace. If you do it the right way, if you determine the will of God the right way, you'll have peace. If you don't, uh, chances are you're not going to have peace at all. So uh, I want to tell you some things to do and then some things uh, not to do. The first thing I want to say about not doing is don't necessarily accept every traditional suggestion that you hear. Because some of them sound right, but they're not. Like the open door. It sounds right, but it's not necessarily right. It doesn't determine the will of God. Some show opportunity, like the open door, but not necessarily God's will. Some are just stupid, like the guy sticking his finger in the Bible. That's not how you determine God's uh, will. Or putting Gideon's fleece out there. Uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with God's will. There's something else going on there. Now, some are just downright uh, contradictory. People get these inner impressions, and they don't know if it's right or wrong. They might have an impression about one girl they're going out with, and maybe they want to marry. I mean, she's pretty. I'd like to marry her. And this Christian's got another girl, and she's a Georgia peach. He likes her accent. He can't decide which one of these he should marry. And God's not going to tell him. So he has an impression one day he's going to go with the one girl and marry her. Then another day he has an impression with the other one. He's going to go with her. Uh, Impressions can contradict each other. So you have to watch for contradictory things. Uh, Some just show an absolute lack of faith, like Gideon. This whole fleece thing was a matter of lack of faith. It wasn't about God's will because he already knew that. Some things aren't for you. Everything in the Bible is not for you. If God told an apostle to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean he's telling you. Or if he's telling Israel about the Urim and Thummim that determines God's will, like throwing dice, he's not telling that uh, to you. There are things in Paul's conversion about um, audible voices in other times when he has visions. Because God does something with an apostle, in the apostolic age doesn't mean he's going to do that with you the same time. And uh, Paul's Macedonian call, uh, probably that's not going to happen uh, with you like that. Um, And so those are some things that you shouldn't really necessarily expect. And plus, some some things are dangerous, I believe. Uh, I believe the time of uh, inspiration and revelation, supernatural revelation like that, is over. This is the time of illumination, where the Holy Spirit illuminates our mind uh, with the scriptures and then like that. And so, um, some of these things, like the inward urgings or guiding impulses or inner voices or uh, pressure, different things like that, uh, where you don't know what the source is and like that, uh, you have to be careful of. Uh, but the main thing I want to say, and that's what this podcast is about, is don't wait for the dot. I told a fellow that God's not going to answer his prayer. And he didn't understand that why. 
Why not? God answers all prayer. No, he doesn't answer all prayer. You're praying for the dot. I've seen that when you pray. I've listened to you pray. I've listened for the things that you're praying about. And you're asking God to give you some specific thing that he's not going to tell you. Now, Adam and Eve were in the garden. And God told them, you can eat of any tree in this garden that you want to. Just leave the tree alone, the tree of good and evil. And so, okay, they start going on their way. And uh, God buries them because he figures he better. And uh, they're at home. Adam goes out, starts naming the animals. He's out there working. And like women do, they say, Adam, are you busy? Come on in. Come on back in the house. And he comes running back in. And he's hungry. His stomach is growling. He figured out that the lion wasn't the only thing that growled. His stomach was growling. He said, let's have some dinner. He says, what's dinner? I never heard that word before. And he explained that to her. So he goes back out, and he's going to start naming the animals again. Pretty soon she calls him again, like women do. And he comes running in, and she says, I'm thinking of making a lemon meringue pie tonight. Go ask Lord God, Landlord God, if I can go pick some lemons. So Adam goes running out there, and he says, Hey, Landlord God, uh, he wants to pick some lemons. Would that be all right? God says, you can take of any tree of the field that you want to in the garden. Just leave that tree of good and evil alone. So Adam goes running back to Eve, and she says, what did he say? He says, well, he didn't say much more than before. I don't know that it's any, any clearer. He just said, I can take any tree of the garden and eat it, but leave that other tree alone. And she said, well, it doesn't matter. I've changed my mind. That's a woman's prerogative. I decided I want to make some peach cobbler. Go ask landlord God if I can go pick some peaches. So Adam goes running out there, muttered under his breath. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to get things done here, trying to name these animals. She's got me running back and forth. So he goes to landlord God and says, Eve wants to pick some peaches. And landlord God says, Adam, I told you. You can take any tree of the garden. Pick any fruit that you want to. You want uh, a lemon, you want peaches, or whatever. I told you you should pay attention and quit looking at that girl. Now go back and tell her what I told you. So Adam goes running back to her, and he gets back there, and she says, what did he say? Well, he said, I could eat of any fruit of the tree. And she said, well, it doesn't matter because I decided I don't want to make the peach cobbler anyway. And so Adam says, well, why don't you make a fruit salad? He says, what's a, what's a salad? I never heard of that. So he explains it to her. And they have dinner, and everything is fine and goes on with them uh, until she wants to make an apple pie. So anyway, the thing is, with Adam and Eve, God wasn't going to tell them what to pick. They had freedom of choice, just like with the animals. He said, you can name them anything you want. Don't come running to me. You have freedom of choice. Within uh, boundaries, I give you freedom of choice. And with this garden and the trees and all the fruit, uh, the boundary is don't eat of the tree of life. But within the boundaries, you have a freedom of choice. Now, I told you that God wasn't going to answer your prayers. And I'll tell you why. Because you were praying for the dot. God gave us boundaries 
and you're praying that you love this girl, this Christian, and you're wondering if you should marry her or not. And you're wanting God to give you the dot, but he's never going to give you the dot. He gave you boundaries. He gave you freedom of choice within those boundaries. If you want to marry her, you can. And if you don't, you don't have to. And if you had three girlfriends, uh, you have freedom of choice. If one of them is a, a Buddhist, you say, oh, she's really spiritual. I'd like to marry her. Or one of them is a real pretty girl. She's a moralist, but she's not a believer. Uh, maybe I want to marry her. But then I got this Christian girl, and I really love her. I could marry her. Well, it makes it pretty easy. God set the boundaries. Be not unequally yoked together. That eliminates the Buddhist. That eliminates the moralist. And if you want to marry the Christian girl, I'm not going to give you the dot. I'm not going to tell you to marry her. Um, it's your choice. You have freedom of choice. If you find another Christian girl and you can't decide, it's still your choice. Don't be praying to me and asking me to give you the dot. Like Adam and Eve were. They wanted me to tell them every single thing to do. And the reason I don't answer a lot of your prayers is because I've already given you the boundaries in the scriptures, and you should know what you're supposed to do. I gave you freedom of choice, and so I don't answer those prayers because I'm not going to give you the dot. So there are things that you don't want to do in prayer. Don't ask for the dot. Um, there are some things you do want to do. One is take the easy way out. You want to know the will of God? Uh, Brandon talked in the book of Numbers for eight chapters, talked about the will of God, how there's a, a cloud over the tabernacle. And when the cloud moved, the tabernacle moved. If the cloud stayed, the tabernacle stayed. There's no thought there. You don't have to think about anything. There's only one thing to do. If it moves, you move. If it doesn't move, you don't move. He didn't say if the cloud moves, you can either go with it or not, whether it's a choice and freedom. He made it simple. When the cloud moves, you move. And so that makes it simple. But there's other things that are simple about the world, Word of God. One is just moral choices and moral commands and things that God says in the Bible. It's simple. If it says don't steal, that's simple. You don't steal. Don't bear false witness, then you don't bear false witness. Don't uh, kill anybody, then that's simple. A lot of these things about God's will are simple. You just do exactly what God said, and it's not complicated. And it's easy. Just do what God said. And, of course, you can always make it easy by ignoring uh, stupid things and uh, pay attention for contradictions and like that. So forget about getting the dot. That's the main thing. And know the scriptures. If you know the scriptures, you know the boundaries. God doesn't have to give you the dot. You have freedom of choice within those boundaries to make the decision yourself. He gave you freedom of will. And so uh, don't look for the dot from God when he's not going to do it. You could pray 20 different prayers asking God for the dot, and he's not going to give you an answer to any of them. That's why I said I've listened to you pray, and God's not going to answer your prayer. That's what I meant by that. And so I hope you understand that. Um, now, we got to know that there is such a thing in the Scriptures as the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about that. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Uh, Galatians 5.18 says, But if ye be led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So there is the leading of the Holy Spirit. The question is, how does he lead? And how does he not lead? And uh, 
So these things we've talked about, about God's will, I think will help. In conclusion, I think I'd like to say there are two kinds of Christians about God's will. One says, thy will be done. The other one says, well, okay, God, have it your way. The Puritans used to say, you are wise and know how to apply it. Pick one of those two and decide for yourself which one you think is right. In the message on Sunday, we talked about how walking God's will is not always perfect. Sometimes there will be hardship. There will be obstacles. There will be hindrances and roadblocks. And we see that happen in the Bible. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see Paul talking about this. And he says in verse 18, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So apparently we learned that Paul was trying to get to Thessalonica, but couldn't a few times because Satan, or at least says again and again, because Satan was hindering them. But then you have in Acts chapter 16, our same Paul traveling, we see in Acts 16, verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So in Thessalonians, Paul says, Satan hindered us. Now in Acts, Luke is writing, now, this is a different time, but uh, there's a different instance where Paul is hindered by the Holy Spirit. So sometimes Satan hinders us. Sometimes the Holy Spirit hinders us. Satan did it again and again. The Holy Spirit hinders Paul again and again. It continues in Acts 16, now verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so there in Acts, we see... Paul and his gang trying to get to places to preach the gospel and doors are being shut. And Luke tells us it's the Holy Spirit who's shutting those doors. Then they eventually get to where they should be. A vision of a man saying, come help us. They go there. It's Philippi. And of course, we know there's a letter to the Philippians and some good things happen in that city. So there the Holy Spirit's closing doors to lead them to the fruitful land. And sometimes we need to understand that hindrances and roadblocks are meant to redirect us. Sometimes we just have to start moving and then God can steer us. You have to put the car in drive if you want to steer it, right? 
But then there are times when there are roadblocks and it's not the Holy Spirit redirecting us. It's Satan stopping us. In those instances, you want to press forward. So you can see in Acts, it would have been foolish for Paul to try to fight the Holy Spirit and get there anyway. But in Thessalonians, we see that it would have been foolish for Paul to give up and let this, and let Satan win. So here we have this confusing concept about roadblocks. What are hindrances doing? Who's behind them? Should we push through them or should we learn to give up when they come? These are very complicated questions. And the only thing I can think of to lend support is this. In Thessalonians, Paul seems to know for sure what God's will is. He is to visit this church. He knows that. He knows these people need him. He has a special bond with them. Many people think 1 Thessalonians is the first letter written by him. He knows that he needs to get to see them. This is a clear thing for him. So when he can't, he sees it as Satan hindering him. Now in Acts, Paul is just trying to get the word out to cities. He doesn't necessarily know that this city is the one to go to or that city is the one to go to. So he, in that instance, sees these closed doors as guidance. Well, I tried there because I was just guessing the city and the door closed. So I'm going to take that as God saying, not this one, keep on moving. And then there was an open door for him in Philippi. So to the best of uh, my guess is that If you know for certain what you should do, don't let Satan hinder you. But if you're stepping out and trying and testing and probing what God's will is, then heed the hindrances because they may be redirecting you. Next, we have an interview with Josiah Solis about how he found his calling in life. Josiah, most of you may remember from Youth Call, that discipleship program. Uh, he was part of the first group and even did a repeat uh, in the second year. Josiah presently is attending Biola University, where he is studying film. So we're going to talk about how he received that calling. And then how did he know to go to Youth Call And not just once, but twice. And the second one was particularly interesting because on the trip, his mom's cancer took a turn for the worse, and he wasn't sure if he needed to come home or not, a decision which ate at him. So here is Josiah Solis. So Josiah, I just wanted to start with asking you, when did you know that you wanted to work in film? I was 16. I was living in Abilene, Texas, kind of unplanned. My mom had remarried uh, about six months prior. After my parents divorced, about a year and a half after my parents divorced, we were living in El Paso, Texas, where I grew up for 14 years. Afterwards, my mom, my brother, and and myself moved to Henderson, Nevada to receive healing from the divorce while my father moved to Abilene, Texas, Central Texas. In Henderson, I I get established at a new school, at a new church, and I develop strong friendships. And, um, yeah, I, I start really liking my life over there. And then it's cut short 
um, by me going down to visit my dad and my mom had just gotten remarried to my ex stepfather and my mom decided to move with my ex stepdad because he was very, very harsh and persuasive of her. And that excluded me from joining them. They moved to Colorado. So I went to go visit my dad in Texas and I get a phone call from my mom saying that, uh, she and he are wanting to move to Colorado and there's no place to, for, 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 there's no place for me. Upon moving to Abilene, Texas, I was experiencing a lot of resentment and I did not want to be down there because Abilene is a small town. I, it was kind of totally unplanned. You know, imagine, imagine going on a vacation to visit a relative and then getting a phone call saying, Hey, don't come back. You're staying there. Um, so I was feeling very abandoned at the time and I was missing home a lot, a lot. And I began releasing some frustration, uh, in the form of writing screenplays. I had never written screenplays. I was doing it very amateurly, of course. Uh, I just had Microsoft Word, and I was just looked on some of the bare bones, meat and potatoes, and how to write a screenplay. But why screenplay? Why not poetry or short stories or journaling? I was I I've been writing little action flicks or action stories, I should say, since I was a kid, and I just felt like God, like when I was in the, I was in the library and I was just writing, and I felt like God was telling me to write a particular story in the form of a screenplay to kind of to see how it went and I was like okay I've never written one I'm gonna try it and I, I broke a, now that I'm actually in film school I, it's kind of funny I broke a lot of rules that I you know that ought not to be in screenplays but I didn't really know at the time I was just writing how I thought a screenplay ought to be written so I was writing it and I wrote a lot of different things and in my mind, the story played out like a huge movie, so detailed, and I had a blast writing it. Um, I always skipped lunch just to, um, I always skipped lunch just to write it. Um, I would go inside the library and, and log onto the computer and just type away, type away, type away. And even after class, even when I'm in class, my mind is still on the story. And, uh, it was, it, it, it brought a lot of, it brought a lot of purpose to me, something that school didn't. Um, I was, you know, you're only in school because it's the law. Um, but God changed that as well. He, I, I wasn't really for school. School was never my thing. I hated school. I, I never liked to be in school. Um, but when God placed a film on my heart strongly, like you're going to be a filmmaker and you spread my gospel through this medium, my attitude on school changed. I was like, I am going to graduate from high school. Prior to that, I did not care. I was like, I don't, I'll drop out, get a GED, whatever. I don't really know what to do, but it gave me direction. And after I, after high school, I'm going to go to film school. So I'm going to graduate, I'm going to get my diploma, and I'm going to go to film school somewhere. So, okay, so you're, you're in this place where you're really frustrated and then you 
feel you, you need to get this out in writing, um, almost on a whim, uh, the Lord leading you to do a screenplay instead of poetry or instead of a short story, you find out that you love this. You can't get enough of it. And you start planning to go to film school. All this from writing one screenplay. And yeah, in, in the Biola university or sorry, the Abilene high school library. Abilene high school library. Wow. Do you still have the screenplay? You know what? I do not. I do not. No? I, I've been trying to track it down. Like I would send it, I sent it to my, my, one of my friends back in Abilene, um, who I was dating at the time. And I asked her just recently, I was like, Hey, can you check like your old like high school email and see if I, if, if it's in there? Cause I couldn't, I can't find it for the life of me in any of my emails. And she couldn't. And I'm just like, wow, I guess that was just something to ignite the flame and like every flame. Um, as it goes down the line, you know, it dies out prior, but always keeps lighting, keeps igniting further down the line. So I'm like, I guess that, that trail behind me has already burned out, but the fire is still going forward. So for the, for, I, I mean, I know the story, I know what story I wrote, but I would, I would love right now to get to open that up and see exactly how I wrote everything at the time that I was writing it. But I, unfortunately I cannot find it. Wow, man, that's unfortunate. But it did serve its purpose. It did. It really did. If you were to give us, if you, from what you remember of that story, what is it in an elevator pitch? <laughs> you want to know? It's the uh, no, it's the Everglow Chronicles. The the one the one that I adapted from that May album. Oh, nice. Right. So and so that's the story in which you are writing about a guy's journey based upon a soundtrack. Yeah. A, a, an album. Yeah, a music album from a rock band. So you were 16 years old, and you already had a vision for life. Yeah. Man, how many people probably would love to just know, know, know at that age what they're going to do? I can imagine that having that kind of vision really made decisions come into sharper focus for you. It did. Um, you know, but things changed along the way, but the but the end goal never did. Um. I, it, what, the year after I had been living in Abilene, I change of plans, things, the Lord works things out. I looking back, I'm like, I don't even know how God did, did it. But then <laughs> we ended up moving back. My mom ended up leaving my, my stepdad and we, and she and I ended up moving back to Nevada together. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting how God works all of that for good things that, you know, that people would say, you know, it's ungodly to, to divorce your husband or your wife on unbiblical grounds. You know, you shouldn't have done that, but yet it, there seems to be things that God utilizes that contra that, that sometimes go against what we feel ought to be the proper way to handle things. And even, and they even see that in scripture, when 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 the disciples are in the in the fields and then they say, "Hey, why are your 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 disciples doing what is ought not lawful to do on the Sabbath?" And Christ says, "Do you not remember what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went inside and ate the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat, but only the priests." And it's interesting how my mom leaving my stepdad, divorcing him, and him and us going back to Nevada was all of God's God's way of bringing me back to Henderson to finish high school right in time before the first year of youth call. 
And um, when Pastor John at the church was talking about youth call, youth out using their hands for Christ in all kinds of languages, a new missionary program that my church was wanting was designing, I did not want to do it. Why? Because I wanted to go to film school. I felt like that's what that's what God told me to do. I'm going to go to film school after I graduate. But God, in the midst of my prayer and my seeking, he said, yes, I am going to send you to film school. But before you go into the film industry, I need to strengthen you in my walk, in your walk with me. And I am going to do that through youth call. Yeah, that must have been hard. There, there's this tension of, you know, already what God has called you to do. But then you're hearing him call you to go into this discipleship program, youth call. Were you, were you ever doubting that uh, that God was really calling you to youth call? No, no. So it was clear to you. It was clear because I I saw in myself if if God is indeed calling me to the industry, a very ungodly industry, a very a, an industry that's very big on self image and self worth and self uh, fulfillment. I need to be strengthened in who my God is that's sending me there in the first place. I feel like that's such a mature way to see it at such a young age. That's exactly. See, it's, it's, it's Phil. I would not have gone to it unless I knew of the calling that God had placed on my life. If I didn't know what to do, I probably would not have gone. I'm not going to go over the mission field, but God was like, here is your goal that I'm calling you to. And these are the steps that you're going to be taking to get there. Do you remember the moment when it was clear that you had to go to youth call and what you were feeling and how that, how that came to you? Uh, it was quite a while ago, but I do, I mean, what I told you is, is true about, um, you know, God told me, I'm going to use you in this industry, so I need to strengthen you. I remember him speaking that to me and me, me having that, the conviction in my heart, in my prayer of um, finding out whether youth call was God's will for my life. I do remember him specifically laying that on my heart. I don't know when it was, don't know what day it was, don't know what I was doing. It's, you know, it was quite a while ago, but it, that was the one thing I got from it. Was it something like you couldn't get youth call out of your head? Um, like, no, it's, it's, it's something, it's something that you feel, you feel a, a peace about and a conviction about and courage about. He gives you courage, you know? Yeah. And so you, you, uh, actually went to youth call again. I did second time. It was the very next year, right? Yeah. And. <laughs> it could be easy for someone who's just so gun ho on his dream to be like, I already did it. God, I'm good. I'm going to go to film school. How in the world did you end up doing youth call a second time? I feel from, cause you know that I went up there to work, um, in the summer of 2012. And, um, I, didn't know exactly. I felt like I had to go up there because I didn't know what to do. Um, just some personal things back home. But God was then indeed calling me a second time over overseas. And I feel like that was... Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's what's cool. 
now that it comes to me. I feel like first year and second year bore two separate themes that somewhat reflect my time here at Biola University. My first year in Africa, Uganda, was very hands-on. We did a lot of work. A lot of work. A lot of... And I utilized a lot of my film knowledge over there. There was a lot of people there that were interested in filmmaking, and they asked me questions, and Pastor John gave me a video camera to record everything. So everything we did, I was the videographer. Okay? So I felt like Uganda was a lot of my film goal in mind among all of the other things we did, like the Bible college classes. You know what I mean? Right. Um, the second time in youth call, it was a lot less work and more study. The study of God's word, the application of God's word, I would say it was in Cambodia that I began listening to podcasts from Robbie Zacharias, John Lennox, William Lane Craig, and that reflects the Bible study and the and the Bible courses here at Biola. First year was very hands-on and film-related, and that refers to my film classes, my production classes here at Biola. Second year of youth call was more study of God's word, less missionary work and more teaching Bible studies is what I was asked to do. More um, uh, mentoring other, other young Kamai students in God's word. And that reflects, as I said, the Bible courses of this university. It's interesting that it seems like God knew you would have a, two-step discipleship. Um, do, do you think you would have gone to, uh, I'm sorry, to a youth call if you knew it was going to be two years instead of one? No. No. So it's, it's good that he leads us one step at a time. Exactly. Which is also very frustrating. And, but, I, <laughs> but see, if I had come to Biola immediately after high school, I would have, I would struggled a great deal. How so? Because one of the things that many people are not a fan of here are the Bible courses. And that's kind of, that's kind of like mind boggling because Biola has like some, like some of the best Bible courses in the, in the world and definitely North America, but they don't appreciate it and they don't understand it. They're like, why can't I just study my major? Why do I have to take all of these Bible classes? But for me, having been instructed in theology and taught, educated in, in, in theology and learned to study God's word and it developed a, an interest in me in apologetics and all of that really was ingrained in me in my second year of youth call. And um, now... I, I love these Bible classes. I appreciate them 
because of a before I am a filmmaker and an artist, I am a creature in love with its creator. I am a Christian in love with his God. And I am blessed and, and I love the unique atmosphere of Biola that I can study both film and theology simultaneously as I did in youth call. I studied film on my own, in my own books, but then we, of course, we had our Bible college classes, you know, all of that, the Bible college classes we had through Calvary Chapel, I believe was God was instilling that love for his word, not just devotionally, but academically, because he saw that one day I am going to go to Biola University that are going to have university level Bible college courses, Bible courses, alongside hands-on film courses. So I feel like in order for me to thrive here at Biola University, I the Lord had to tweak some things in me. Again, I told you I hated school prior to God, prior to God telling me to get into film school. So God had to tweak how I approached academia. And it wasn't just formal academia in social studies and mathematics and science and the arts, but also another form of academia, um, theology, the study of God, something that I didn't do all my life. You know, I was only in high school, middle school, junior high, studied just what the state wanted me to study, what was required from the school districts. So I had to learn to work out my muscle of studying something, of studying God's word in a more academic light which I am doing heavily here at Biola. Yeah, yeah. And that makes me wonder, why did you choose Biola? I mean, you could have chosen a film school dedicated to film to film, and probably made life easier on yourself right now. Because God is doing great things through Biola. Biola loves the Lord with all of its heart, mind, soul. Doesn't mean that it's perfect. Neither are we perfect as creatures. But upon being in Cambodia and listening to, like I said, Robbie podcasts, William Lane Craig, I also met a lot of missionaries, different people that were from Biola University. And then getting really into William Lane Craig, who's actually on staff here at Biola University and listening to Robbie Zacharias, who employs many people who are from Biola University. The late Nabil Qureshi is one of them. And also knowing that Oscar's daughter, Brianna, attended Biola University. So God was just putting Biola in my heart. I remember after going through a difficult time in my life, a year after coming back from the second year of youth call, I remember I was with my mom in the car and I just said, I don't even know how it came up. I just said, mom, I'm going to eat Biola. I'm going there for film. And the Lord placed on my heart to then enroll in community college to one day get to Biola. 
Right, because Biola is a pretty big step for you. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of money. Yes. But I felt that if that's where God was leading me, he will provide. And he has. And he will. We serve a very good, a very big God. We serve a very big God who not only supports financially, but in my case, mentally, psychologically as well. He provided me to handle the workload and the academics that I am now taking now. I am, in all my life, I struggled in school. I was a DC student. It's only in college that I'm AB, an AB student. And I am here at Biola primarily on academic-based scholarships because of my GPA and my grades. So that was not something that I could have done myself. That's only through God. And it all started by God one day saying, you are going to go to film school. That's how you know it's a calling because it changes who you are as a person. It's not an interest. It's not a hobby. It's not something that's like, oh, I'm into that. A thing that would be my hobby would be worship leading. It's not a calling or art. I draw, but it's not, it's not a calling. It's a hobby. Yeah, you enjoy those, but they aren't shaping your decisions and the way you see the world. Exactly. So how would you describe the will of God? The will of God. It's something that God himself wrestled with. The Garden of Gethsemane. There is, of course, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. There is a primary capital will of God. And that is that we live a godly life unto him and that we surrender our lives unto him. That's his primary will. Everything else is below that. So that's the common will for everybody. That's the common will for all of man. To live a godly life. To live a life pursuing him. And so then everything else, like should I move, should I marry this person, should I, uh, what's my calling in life, all these things come underneath that underneath. umbrella. God has one will for our life. One will, and he has many, many other allowances under those will and under that primary will. Things God allows, things God um, lets us do. Yes, we are to bring our plans to God. I do all the time. But I know that the one thing, the bare minimum, if there's one thing, if all hell were to break loose in my life, one thing I do know is that I, I am to keep following him. Just like has John, as Jesus says in the end of John's, in John chapter 21, when he tells Peter, if it is my will that he, John, were to remain till I return, what is that to thee? You follow me. Now, there's a lot of different things in God's will that he allows us to go through. Like right now, God, in the midst of his big capital W will, is allowing me to go to Biola University. It's a plan that he instilled in my heart to do. But at any moment, I have to be willing to let that go. He were to give me a plan B, a plan C, if he were to redirect me. Man makes his way. God plans his steps. 
The only thing that I know for certain that is not wavering, that will not change, that ought not to be changed, is to follow after Christ. That is one thing that is non-negotiable. Whether I get married, whether I have kids, whether my kids are healthy, whether I get married and my wife passes, whether I become a millionaire, whether I become a deadbeat Hollywood director, all of those things change and have possibilities of. But there's one thing that is absolutely certain, and that, that is to follow after Christ. Because on our deathbed, it is not our accomplishments that usher us into heaven, it's God himself. I like I like the distinction between the will and the allowances. Yes. So I'm thinking about the person right now who is at a crossroads about decisions. Um, what kind of counsel would you give to someone in that dilemma? In Proverbs, it says that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So I think if they're at a crossroads, they should bring other people in on it. So people shouldn't leave these things to be privately determined. No. If it's something that is, when we use the term crossroads, it's something that's very big. If it's small decisions that can be figured out on your own, things that aren't that big, thing, but if it's, then I, if it's something small like that, I think we can use our own God-given intellect, our own God-given intuition. But usually crossroads have the connotation of, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to do, to go through X or go through Avenue Y. So you would start with, um, get some counsel. Yep. Cause we can only see in our lives subjectively. There's people who objectively look into our lives from the outside. And may notice things about us that we do not know. And they may be able to give us more insight on our decision making. Yeah, they're detached from the emotional weight of everything. Yep. I think you see a little bit clearer. Yep. And then after, after counsel. After proper counsel has been made and prayer, constantly being in connection with God, constantly seeking his will. The next one that I would say is to just whatever, which one would glorify God the most, do it. And know that if we mess up, that doesn't affect who we are as a person. It doesn't mean that we're failures in life. And it's okay to fail. It's okay to try an avenue and to fail at it. I'd say that failure is the is the better teacher than success. And know that God's grace covers everything. You're going with God. It's not like, okay, here's Avenue X, here's Avenue Y. You better choose the right one under curtain, you know, under curtain one, because that's the one I'm going to be with you with. <laughs> you know, it's almost like God has built our failure into his plan. Yeah. You're saying. But he is with us wherever we go. Joshua 1 9. Christ says it before the, uh, during the Great Commission. I will be with you low to the, even to the end of the age. And I think it's, it's good to be willing to fail with God by your side. And I may fail here at Biola. I may, but I felt like this is something God was leading me to. If they're at a crossroads, they don't know what to do. I think it's to seek counsel, be in prayer, and whichever one you feel 
brings the most, and you can see, brings the most glory to God. Go with it, as Paul says, whatever you do, do it, do it all to the glory of God. For me, it's filmmaking because it's who I am as a person. I would like to circle back in closing on your second youth called term. And you had already mentioned that there was some personal things going on. You yourself had a difficult choice in the midst of that year. Oh, yeah. Did you, did you want to talk about that and how you came to peace with your decision? That is one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. And it had and allowed me to, I don't know, it's kind of scary because it might be preparing me for something in the future. Don't know, but I know God is in the future. But it, it allowed me to see the sacrifice of discipleship after Christ. When Christ says, if my, if he does not leave mother and father for my sake, he's not worthy of the kingdom. I was like, okay, Lord, am I interpreting that? Or is it face value? You meant it. And he meant it. I was like, Lord, you called me to youth call. After my mom was, was diagnosed with the cancer, I didn't know whether to return home in case you were to die or to remain overseas. And you remember, Brandon, I was emailing you about these questions. Mm-hmm. I had, I had a belief system. It was, it was faulty. Now that I look back that if I were to go home, my life would have, would have changed and God would be very mad at me. I believe if I had gone home, I would still be here at Biola with all of its blessings. I used to believe that wholeheartedly. It's not like the reason why I'm here is be good. Hey, just like a good job for staying overseas when it was very tough. Here's Biola. It, I believe if I had gone home early, I would have, I would still be here. That's nothing would have changed because I'm still a follower after Christ. That's where my purpose is found. But it allowed me to see if things get rough, will I flee or will I stay? And I believe in an industry like this, I'm going to be faced with many decisions. I believe as the Christian, we're going to face many decisions like that continually. Just as when Christ asked his disciples, of his other disciples had left, he's like, what about you? Are you going to leave me too? And then, you know, Peter says, Lord, where, where, would, where would we go? Now that Christ was bringing up that point existentially. Will you leave me with your life? And he wasn't really pertaining like, you know, will you guys be fishermen or, you know, talking to them about their vocation or anything like that. It was more primarily about their life. But I believe that I learned a lot of about myself upon staying. I believe that the fruit was richer and the lessons were learned were greater knowing the fact that I stayed. I feel like I can, I look back now, I'm like, when God allowed me to stay in overseas, even after my mom's news, it allowed me to show that whatever hardness comes my way, I can stand my ground with God's help. And that I should not make decisions based on whether God's going to be mad at me or not. 
because I've made a lot of decisions. I mean, I've sinned a lot, done a lot of things that have grieved the Holy Spirit, but yet God has still blessed me, not because he condones it, but because the scripture says it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. God seems to, and it's scripturally, to enjoy blessing his children, not only to, not only out of love, because he's a father, but also to kind of get, get us back in line. So I know that God still blesses me, even in my sins and my wanderings, that I still do as a Christian. So I don't look back and think that if I had left Cambodia early, it would have affected my relationship with God or the outcomes right now. I still believe I still would have been here because God promised me that when I was 16. That's just, yeah, that that just sounds so liberating. What you're saying that like, you still would have ended up at Biola, even if you felt needed, like you needed to go see your mom. I just think that that's such a liberating view that the reward in staying was that God had something there for you, but he was not going to punish you if you left. Exactly. Exactly. Because there is the capital will of God. Remember, the only thing that God is concerned about is that we love him with all of our hearts, mind, and soul. You know, you can go here, there, and everywhere, and God still loves you, you know? So it is liberating because you can do whatever you, in in that crossroads, you can say, I can go here, I can go there, but God's love for me will never change. A path may be harder than the other. Then that leads you to ask yourself, am I having such a crossroads? Am I experiencing a crossroads? I can like pen or a crossroads, um, you know, issue here because I'm, I'm trying to decide which road it has the least resistance. You know, am I facing this crossroads? Not because I want to know which one will please God more or, but because I want to know which one is easiest for me. Yeah, I have this personal motto where if I'm not sure, often choosing uphill is the best choice. Right. Well, Josiah, uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, yeah, no problem. All right, so looking forward to Numbers chapters 10 through 14 this upcoming Sunday. Numbers 10 through 14. So in chapter 10, we're going to see the cloud moves. Israel begins their first steps away from Mount Sinai and toward the promised land. By chapter 13, they are on the threshold of the promised land. Infamously, you probably already know, they refuse to go in in chapter 14. So 13... They send in spies. Now, I used to just imagine that they were just kind of sending in spies to see, oh, is the land good? Uh, you know, is it worth going into? Yes, they do bring back some of the fruit of the land to show how fruitful it is. But I'm beginning to realize that this is more of a reconnaissance mission. They're going in for the purpose of seeing its weaknesses. How can they invade this land 
It's for strategic purposes. Unfortunately, it backfires for they lose confidence. They see that the inhabitants of the land are giants and that there's no way they can ever win the land. And so that's when in chapter 14, the people rebel and say, no way are we walking in God's will if this is what it means. So in a sense, we have a part two of walking in God's will. We're going to see the Israelites fail to do so. And in ways, it's going to build up to that too. And I I want you to read this week ahead, thinking about God's will again. You'll notice that in chapter 11, the people complain. How does that not work into God's will? If we're in God's will, should we be complaining? Is complaining a sign that we're unhappy with his will or that we're trying to assert our will or that we're living in our will and others are hindering us from doing what we want to do? Where does complaining come from? How does that fit into the will of God? In the middle of this, uh, the complaint, uh, God has 70 people helping Moses, and then they come to terms of what they're going to do about the complaint. So God says, I'm going to give the people meat, so much meat that they begin to vomit. They get sick from it. And so they do. They get sick. Watch what you complain for or about. God might actually say, you want your will? Here you go. In chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses, who takes a wife. They don't like the idea, so they stand up to him. Miriam turns into a leper. God then heals her after he pleads. No, don't do this to my sister, God. Uh, but then the whole camp has to wait for her to go through the cleansing rituals. And one thing we see here is criticism of leadership. Yes, sometimes leadership needs to be questioned if it's not going in the right direction. But here God was on Moses' side and defended him and said that Miriam and Aaron had no business questioning him. And so as a result, their criticism hindered the community from moving forward. We need to watch what we say about those who are leading us because it may not be God's will for you to get your way all the time. He may be trying to get his will done through the people that you're not agreeing with. Which, by the way, reminds me of a very excellent book called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. A Tale of Three Kings, Gene Edwards. It is a very short book, but profoundly deep. And in it, he basically, the chapters are incredibly short. You could read this as a devotional. Uh, he's, he's telling the story of King David like it's a play. Like you're watching a play. And there's two acts. One is how David has to learn to submit to a king he does not necessarily think is God's will. King Saul. And then in part two, act two, when David becomes king, he then has his own son trying to rebel against him. And how David reacts to that. A very, very interesting book coming from scripture and how David reacts to two kings, King Saul and then his son trying to make himself King Absalom. And uh, there's some interesting and challenging questions and thoughts about how do we handle leadership, especially when we're pretty sure leadership is not of God? Yeah, interesting questions, because 
I don't know that we can always blindly follow leadership, but we can't always challenge it or at least rebel against it. Maybe asking questions and keeping it accountable is fair, but yeah, the way that David handles King Saul especially was just, it was a powerful moving. So go ahead and pick that book up, A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. Um, all right, so that's the, that's the numbers chapters, because then 13, they go and spy the land. 14, they uh, rebel against God. And it's almost hilarious in a very tragic kind of way that at the end, they decide, oh, no, no, we made a mistake. We want to go do it now. And God's not with them, and they get slaughtered. Uh, so just the fickleness of the human nature. Uh, but there are two more passages I want to bring up in connection with this that you can read along as well. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 1. There's an interesting, I don't want to say conflict, but it, it definitely appears to be that way. So in Numbers 13, verse 1, we, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Haran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were the heads of the people of Israel. So in, in Numbers 13, it's God who tells Moses to pick out spies and to go into the land. Okay? But in Deuteronomy chapter 1, we read this. Chapter 1, verse 21. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then... All of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. So we see in Numbers, it's God's idea. Here in Deuteronomy, it's the people's idea. They come to Moses. And so Moses admits in verse 23, the thing seemed good to me and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. So what's going on there? I don't know for certain. But one thing that I've noticed in my life is that we're not always aware of what God's will is in the moment or what he's up to. Sometimes we understand that in retrospect. I think of Philip in Acts chapter 8 and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is in the wilderness. He sees a chariot. He comes up to it. He sees a eunuch reading the scroll of Isaiah, he sits in the chariot and helps him to understand it. The eunuch accepts Christ and is baptized. Crazy, huh? And in the story of Acts, it tells us the Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness. The Holy Spirit led him to the chariot. The Holy Spirit led him to talk to this eunuch, right? The Holy Spirit's in all of this. But what I wonder is from experience, yes, there are moments, they're not usually everyday moments, but there are moments when we're very aware that the Holy Spirit's leading us to do something. But then there's also moments when you're just kind of going about your day and then you look back and you think, wow, look at what God did. But in the moment, you weren't really aware that God was doing something. It's a truth that we often see God more clearly in retrospect, looking backward. And so I don't know that this is how it happened, but it's very possible that Philip was just kind of going about his day. He was in the wilderness and kind of on instinct, or maybe out of curiosity, he comes up to the chariot and he's like, oh, this guy's reading his, it's the Bible. I should totally talk to him. And then in retrospect, maybe as he's telling the story to the church, he, he realizes 
the Holy Spirit led me to do all of that. And that's how it's recorded. Perhaps. There may be what's going on here between Numbers and Deuteronomy. In Numbers, God tells us to go spy the land. It ended tragically. We look back and say, yeah, maybe that was our idea and not God's idea. Have you ever done that in life? You're pretty sure God's telling you to do something and then you realize, no, no, that was my will and I was just trying to call it God's will. Perhaps, perhaps, maybe Moses in Deuteronomy is reflecting on the fact that that wasn't what God wanted. But then again, spying out the land and how, and how to claim it, is that a wrong thing? I, we may not even be talking about it had the people of Israel decided, let's do it. But because it ended in rebellion and their choice not to walk in God's will, well, now we're talking about it. <laughs> so I said two passages. So Deuteronomy 1 was one. The other is Hebrews chapter 4. And this one's big because it's a New Testament commentary on this passage of the Old Testament. Many people think that Hebrews is a sermon, that the whole book is a sermon uh, just written down. Well, if that's the case, he's using our text and numbers as his text at this part of his sermon. And uh, you, you're going to want to read it. It begins, well, he's also using one of the Psalms that talk about this part of the Bible too. So that might be good to go read as well. Uh, let me look. It's uh, Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Um, so he's talking about how the people chose to harden their hearts against God's leading. And then Hebrews is warning us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then he talks about how uh, they rebelled. And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient so we see, this is Hebrews 3.19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They didn't believe God. They believed the giants they saw with their eyes more than they believed in God. And uh, so it's Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. 4 then kind of encourages us to enter into our rest, Christ. So Hebrews talks about the land being a place of rest, and yet the people couldn't rest because they didn't believe God. They rebelled. And so instead, they go on a 40-year death march through the wilderness. Friends, God wants the best for your life. It doesn't mean it'll be the easiest. There will be giants. There will be hardships. There will be things we need to conquer. But he wants to save us from the carousel of death, from making the same loop over and over and maybe you've been stuck there in life. And maybe you're wanting out of that loop. God wants you out of that loop. This isn't what God wanted for you. God has an inheritance for you. He has a promised land, a place of rest. That's his will for you. Have you been willing to believe him? Have you been willing to face the giants that terrify you? Don't be shut out of resting in God's will because of unbelief. 
Enjoy your reading. I look forward to teaching you on Sunday. <laughs>